turn now to the reading and preaching of the word. Uh, But before I turn to the word of God and pray, I just want to say it's a privilege to be here with you this morning to bring the word of God to you. Let's go ahead and open with a prayer for illumination of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we come to you this morning recognizing our great need. As we open up your word, we ask that you will teach us from on high, that your spirit will come and that the words that I speak will be uh, a blessing to the people, but that they will be from your word, that they will be Christ speaking. Masses in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to an Old Testament passage in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 3. We'll be reading the first 20 verses. But our text today will just be verses 4 through 14. And the reason I'm not covering verses 1 through 3 is because they're more context. So 2 Kings 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And reigned twelve years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. And he did not depart from them. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And used to pay the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when King Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up? Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. He said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, the wilderness, the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days journey, for there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, The son of Shaphat is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. 
And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. He said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of trenches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He also will give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree and stop all springs of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. It happened in the morning about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, that behold, water came by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And just if you're wondering, I'm reading from the NASB version. I don't know how many of you know, but in 2018, there was a ballistic missile alert on the island of Hawaii. Everyone's cell phones received a message saying a ballistic missile was on its way. The the message said, this is not a drill. So for 38 minutes and 13 seconds, the people on the island of, of Hawaii thought that a missile was headed their way. You could imagine how people may have acted. They were throwing children into manholes and sending desperate messages to their family. One lady described the scene afterward as having no hope. So how would you react if you received such a message? Well, how did you react to lesser trials in this past year? Maybe you had financial problems or health problems. What about you kids? Maybe you had some bully at school or someone you knew was in the hospital. Um, Did you know that during these times, kids, you can put your trust in the Lord? And it's the same for parents that we can have this same sort of childlike trust that we can place in our God. So what does it mean to trust, though, kids? When, when you hear that word, what do you think of? You might think of that trust you place in your parents, this childlike trust. And what it means is it's a confidence that you have in your parents. And when you put your trust in the Lord, it's putting your confidence in God. You're depending on him. You're resting your mind on him. Not just for salvation, but in all your circumstances of life. That you can put your trust in God himself. And that's what we have here in our text today. King Jehoshaphat is facing a trial. He is a believer. He's a Christian. It says earlier in the book of Kings that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, as you read our text today, you probably noticed that he was not perfect. He made mistakes. But his response to heaven-sent trial is instructive to us. 
And isn't that what Paul said in the New Testament? He said that these things were written for our example. And you might have noticed King Jehoram, this other king, who was said that he was evil in the sight of the Lord. He was not a believer, and how he reacts is also going to teach you about trial, just by his negative example. And so you, if you're wondering why we're reading a, a passage about kings today, it's because their response to heaven-sent trial is going to help us in our own lives. So where in the scriptures are we? Well, you, many of you are probably familiar with the reigns of David and Solomon. During their time, it was a united reign. And where we are is where the kingdom has split. It was under King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, that the kingdom had split. And Jehoshaphat is Rehoboam's great-grandson. So Jehoshaphat is a son of David. In the north, they had King Ahab was the last king before King Jehoram. And many of you probably know of King Ahab and his expedites with Elijah. And the, when Elijah was on the mountain and all the prophets. And so in our text, here we are. Um, this story of these two kings in the wilderness is going to be instructive for us. So what I want you to see is that through the account of two kings in the wilderness and one prophet, that the Holy Spirit is teaching you to turn to God in trust. So through the account of two kings in the wilderness and one prophet, the Holy Spirit is, at, is teaching you at all times, but especially in trial, to turn to God in trust. So we're going to see the cause for the trial in verses 4 through 8, and then the lessons from the trial in verses 9 to 14. It's in verse 4 that we're introduced to King Misha of Moab. Now, Moab was a vassal of Israel at the time. If you're wondering where Moab was, it was southeast of Israel, and so it was on the other side of the Dead Sea of Judah. And Misha is this wealthy king. He's able to pay this huge tribute, 100,000 lambs, 100,000 wool of rams. I don't know how many of you have farming backgrounds, but that is a lot of sheep and a lot of rams. And so what we see is the first cause for trial is that this king rebels. In verse 5, it says, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And so Jehoram reacts. He's a, he's a new king. He, it says he mustered all Israel. And th this description is a preparation for battle. He's, he's going to prove himself as king. He's going to go out and fight for this tribute. But what I want you to see from this text is that all these circumstances are under God's control. If you remember what we read in verse 19... It was God's purpose to destroy Moab. And our, our catechism is helpful here. And I, I like to read the catechism. It's, it's not the final authority. It, it itself says it's a help. But I think it's very helpful here when it talks about providence. Providence is God's holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So did you hear that? It's God's wisdom and power, which he governs the whole universe. So in the circumstances of, of your life, 
when you realize that God is in control uh, and know that his plan is perfect and his control is absolute, this is the first thing that you need to know when you're facing trial, that God is there and he's real and he's in control. And it's going to give you that confidence. It's the very first step to getting that confidence. So not only does God purpose to destroy Moab, but he's also using these events to test these two kings. He's testing Jehoshaphat, and he's testing Jehoram. And so he causes Moab to rebel, and Jehoram to to react the way he does, all to accomplish his purposes. So what's the next cause for trial? Well, we see that in verses 7 and 8. So we have uh, Jehoram deciding he needs help in this battle. So he sends word to the southern king, King Jehoshaphat. Now Jehoshaphat is this king of Judah. He's that godly king, that son of David. And so he asks him, he says, will you go with me to fight against Moab? And this is where Jehoshaphat makes his first mistake. He says, I will. Well, why would that be wrong? Well, we know from verses 2 and 3 what the Bible says about Jehoram. That while he had put away this pillar of Baal, the final assessment of his kingdom was that he was an evil king. And he actually clung to the sins of Jeroboam. And he made Israel sin. So he, he was an idolater. And Jehoshaphat had no business allying himself with him. And it's actually not the first time Jehoshaphat has done this. Jehoshaphat has allied himself two other times with kings of Israel. Two different kings. The first time was with Ahab himself. And every time he did this, it went badly. When he allied himself with Ahab, he was almost killed in battle. And it was after that battle that a prophet came to him and told him, it was not right that you came and helped the wicked. And so while our text doesn't say that explicitly, I think we can learn that from that other text, that it was not right for him to do this. And don't we have that principle in the New Testament that we are not to be unequally yoked? What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? He says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? So I want to ask you today, is, uh, do you have any time where you compromise uh, with this sinful world that's around us? I think of young people. Do you have friends that you know are influencing you for evil? Are they Christians? So don't compromise with the world. So what's his second mistake? This one is more difficult to see, but it's actually in his failure to seek God here. The last time he had made that alliance with Ahab, he had said the exact same phrase, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then the very next thing he said was this, please inquire first for the Lord for me. So he had done that correctly previously, but in this text, it's conspicuously absent. There's no mention of God. And wasn't that the habit of David? Every time he set out, well, not every time, but nearly every time David set out into battle, it was his habit to seek the Lord. And so these armies now set out into the wilderness in verse 8. And even this godly king Jehoshaphat, you see, he's failing to seek God. But he's a believer, remember that. And, but as he sets out for battle, he makes this mistake. And what it indicates is that he's relying on himself, on his own power. Do you remember what James says 
He says, you are just a vapor. So you're here today, gone tomorrow. And then he, then he says, you should always say as the Lord wills. Well, he doesn't say you should always say, but that's the attitude we need to have in our hearts. Like Lord willing, we know that God is in control, that we are finite, that our times are in his hand, and that every detail is in the hand of God. I want to ask you, do you think by, it's by your own power that you succeed? Do you forget to seek the Lord in the events of your life? One writer says that the reason men do this is that they forget that they are men at all. So I want to encourage you to begin your day in the word and in prayer. There's perhaps no better way to show your dependence upon God than to begin your day in prayer. And to have that attitude in your heart that as the Lord wills, he will do this or that. So we move next to the lessons from the trial in verses 9 to 14. In verse 9, you notice that they take a circuit out into the wilderness, a seven days journey. And they, this is the trial. They have no water. I don't know if any of you have ever been without water. In the wilderness of California, which is on the other side of the mountains where I grew up, it was a very dry and dusty climate. And oftentimes we would go out and visit the desert during the winter months and go on hikes. But it was still very dry. And there was one time where we went with my uncle and we only took one water bottle for between the seven of us. And I just remember thinking, I did not want to get stuck out there without that water. But you can imagine how these kings are feeling. They are without water with, for an entire three armies because the king of Edom has joined them at this point. And, but it's even worse than that because they're sitting ducks now. The king of Moab is going to be watching them. He's going to have scouts. He's going to see that they're without water. And if they're without water, he's going to be able to destroy them. And it's, you, know, so you have to ask yourself, what has, begun, what has become of their... Um, plans now that they began without seeking God. Look where they are. Remember, this is God is in control. So it's actually not unusual for God to ordain trials for his children. When you rely on yourself, uh, God, by his love and grace, brings you back through these trials. Or he does it to test your faith. When you're trusting in your own power and wisdom, God's going to show you through these trials that it's a mistake to do so. And so he ordains trials and suffering for your good. So Jehoshaphat is suffering. And that's the first lesson I want you to see from this passage is that it's not unusual for Christians to suffer. And isn't that what Christ himself did? He suffered on the cross in our place. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And did you know as he did that, he also set an example for us, a pattern for us to follow? Peter says this, he says, to the degree you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So the next time you suffer, just remember that Christ has been there before you and you're following in his steps and he's able to sympathize with your weaknesses. And we should rejoice, for we're following the steps of our great king. 
There are a few other lessons I'd like you to see from this text. And the next is in verse 10. It comes from the king Jehoram. It's interesting, the text only mentions him as the king of Israel from this point out. You, You no longer see his name mentioned. I think that's saying something about him. That he's not reacting correctly here. He reacts much like the Israelites did out of Egypt. He fails to put his trust in the Lord. And while we see him as an unbeliever reacting to trial this way, we have to be careful as believers not to act like unbelievers in our trial, which is a temptation for us. And because isn't that your reaction to trial sometimes? Immediately you think the worst and worry sets in. And it feels right, feels like you're doing something about the problem, but you're not thinking about God in that moment, are you? And Jesus says that worry is a sign of little faith. He says, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies. If God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So worrying about anything does expose unbelief in our own hearts. But I don't want to say that to make you lose heart. I'm actually saying that to encourage you to know that Christians can suffer with this unbelief. It's possible to be a Christian and to struggle with worry. Uh, There's always going to be a mixture, even in the Christian, of belief and unbelief. So it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian, even if you struggle with unbelief. Um, But I want you to recognize that it is a problem, that it's a, a symptom of something greater when you're worrying. And it's something that we can turn from and go to the throne of grace for. And we can find repentance um, in the mercy of God in Christ. Even when we fall into this sin. But meanwhile, Jehoram is blaming God. He says, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Now Christians are called to something higher in our trials, aren't we? We should see the reality of God in that moment. To realize that he is in control that he is good, that he is merciful. Perkins says, so endless is his mercy and his goodness so unspeakable toward his servants that if they cleave to him unfeigningly, they shall find his bounty far surpassing all they could ask or think. So cast your cares on the merciful and all-powerful God when you face trial, and it will transform the way you deal with your circumstances how you react to to difficulty, and you will be filled with a peace that passes understanding. So trials expose our unbelief, but trials also help us trust. Jehoshaphat, in verse 11, says, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Now Jehoshaphat had failed earlier. He had not inquired of the Lord the first time. But here he is now, and God, by his mercy, is instilling this faith in him. Through this trial, he's now responding as he should in trust. Notice how different it is from Jehoram. He's not panicking. He's not blaming God. He's turning to the grace of God. He knows 
that if there was a prophet here, that God would give him direction and God would give him help. And so he's recognizing not only that God is in control, but that God is favorable to him, that God loves him and will do something for him. And then that not that what God does? He provides the prophet. That's the very next thing it says. It says, Elisha, the, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. It's interesting. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's the very thing they needed at that moment was water. But the, God in this moment is providing them a prophet who is their only hope in this trial. So trials help you trust. It helped Jehoshaphat trust. But trials also drive you to the word of God. So Elisha, as a prophet of God, is the one who speaks the word of God to them. And Jehoshaphat admits that. He says in verse 12, the word of the Lord is with him. And they go down to the prophet. Isn't that interesting? These three kings are going down to the prophet. They're humbled They know that they needed him. Now, how does this work for us today? What does the author of Hebrews say? He says, well, long ago and in many times, God spoke by his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So when you open up your Bibles, you have the word of God, and it is Christ's word to you. It is Christ's voice that speaks in the word of God, And more importantly than any specific direction you can get from a prophet, in the Bible, you understand that God is for you. So Calvin calls this the knowledge of divine favor. And what that means is the Bible is teaching not just who God is, but who God is to you. He's the God of Psalm 91. He will be with you in trouble. He will rescue you. And with long life, he will satisfy you. He promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. So this is what you receive in the word of God, that God is for you. So in 2024, I want to encourage you to be in the word. Every day, when you face trial then, you're going to be ready. You're going to know who God is to you. And so the final lesson, this is the last one, and this one comes from the prophet. In verse 13, Elisha says to Jehoram, he says, what do I have to do with you? So the lesson from this trial is that only God's people can truly expect God's help. Elisha knows that Jehoram's true allegiance is with the prophets of his father and mother. While he had removed the pillar of Baal, It was Jehu, the next king, who would have to break the pillar. It was Jehu who would have to kill the prophets of Baal and Jezebel, his own mother. But on the other hand, uh, Jehoshaphat regards the belief, or no, Elisha regards the belief of Jehoshaphat. He says that he regarded the presidents, that Jehoshaphat knows that Jehoshaphat's allegiance is to the Lord, that he did what was right in the sight of God. So the difference ultimately between Jehoram and Jehoshaphat is their faith. Jehoshaphat had faith in the God of Israel. He had faith in Jesus Christ to come 
We have faith in Christ who has already came. Isn't that what the Bible says? The just shall live by faith. And so that's ultimately how Jehoshaphat is able to trust in God in trial. It's because he trusts in God for salvation. So maybe you'll never face a Hawaii missile alert. But there's going to be other trials in your life where you won't know what to do. And it's through this account of the two kings in the wilderness that the Holy Spirit is teaching you what to do. To turn to God in trust. To have confidence in him. So as you think back on the past year, there may have been times where you you did not do so. Where you remember that you didn't trust. But don't lose heart. What did we read earlier? That Christ will not extinguish a smoking flax. He will not break a bruised reed. And he says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So take encouragement from Christ himself, who supports you under your sufferings. He's the captain of our salvation, and he will be with you to the end of the age. Knowing this, you can confidently say, our help is in the name of the Lord. But young person, if you are outside of Christ today, I want you to see that uh, if you're living a lie like Jehoram, where you confess God with your lips, but your heart is far from God, I want you to know that you're not in control of your life. Even if you think you are, you can't enjoy sin now and turn to God later. Not easily, at least, because the harder your heart gets, the harder it is to turn back to God. So, young person, I want to call you today. I'm not saying this to discourage you. I'm calling you and saying that today is the day of salvation. Cry out to God for the mercy that you will find in Jesus Christ. And turn away from that sin that's in your life. And dear Christian, I want to encourage you to make 2024 the year in which you turn to God in your trials. For these trials are producing an eternal weight of glory for you. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you will bless it to our hearts. We do ask that you will make us doers of the word and not hearers only. We acknowledge that we are in great need of your grace as we seek to walk in your ways. Thank you for this congregation today, and I pray that you will bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me, and we will sing the hymn, Wonderful Words of Life, number 697, and we'll sing the first and the third verse.